0: Well, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 says, Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people who will remain from Assyria. Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel, and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Again, verse 11, the very beginning of the of the verse there says, It will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand. The second time. A second recovery of the people of Israel is what Isaiah is prophesying at that point. There will be a second recovery. When was the first recovery? You may know if you know your your Hebrew history. Babylon captured, destroyed, and deported the Jews of the southern kingdom of Judah in three waves. Back in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. Three separate waves, the Jews were deported out of Israel. But in a like manner, there were three waves of return. In 538, 458, and finally 444 B.C. And it was the only time in history that Jewish people returned en masse to the country of Israel. To the land that was promised to them. That was the first time. And it's the first and only time that that kind of return has happened. And yet the prophet Isaiah, among other prophets, speaks of a second time, another return, a return which would follow a dispersion that is worldwide where Israel would be drawn back to the land from the four corners of the earth, a second return, and I believe this return is in part, in part, happening before our very eyes as the greatest biblical drama of our generation. Now I say in part because the return that we're seeing is not the return that's prophesied yet. And I'll explain that more as we go on tonight. But there is a movement back to, ever since 1948, a return to the land of Israel, and actually ever since years just prior to that, Jewish people the world over returning to Israel. And it has stunned prophecy scholars and surprised skeptics To see this actually taking place before our very eyes. Well, last week we were studying in Deuteronomy 28. And Moses declared all the curses that would and in fact did overtake Israel. He went through all of what would happen. And just as Moses promised, they were ultimately scattered into all the nations where they've been persecuted for 2,000 years. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 64. If you want to follow along, it's a little bit before our chapter tonight, but it says, Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no rest. And there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, despairing of soul. So your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you shall be in dread night and day, and shall have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, Would that it were evening, and at evening you shall say, Would that it were morning, because of the dread of your heart which you dread, and for the sight of your eyes which you will see." The Lord will bring you back to Egypt in ships. By the way about which I spoke to you, you will never see it again. And there you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But there will be no buyer. Now that study through chapter 8 is a pretty heavy study because it is all about the curses that would, and as we have seen, have fallen on Israel over the past couple thousand years. All the curses played out. But in chapters 29 and 30 and on into chapter 31, God declares through Moses what would happen when these people who turned their backs on God would turn back to God and finally be saved. He reminds the people in chapter 29 of a very specific covenant that God made with them. This is not the Mosaic covenant. It's another covenant. It's called the Land Covenant. You may have heard it referred to as the Palestinian Covenant. That can be a little confusing today because the Palestinian people is a totally different people group than they used to be. What I mean by that is there used to be Palestinian Arabs and Palestinian Jews back when the land was called Palestine. Which it was called for thousands of years ever since Emperor Hadrian back in 135 AD. Probably some of you know that date. 135 was when Hadrian finally drove the Jews out following what was called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. And when he drove them out, he renamed the land. He, he renamed it from Judea to Palestinia, Philistine country, as a slap in the face of the Jews who were driven out. But this land covenant is a covenant that draws all the way back to Abraham. Genesis chapter 13, verse 14, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you will see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. The Hebrew word for forever means forever. Forever, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, the Lord said, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. When I was in Israel back in January, we went to this place called Abraham's Tent. I believe our group's going to go there again. And it was a great experience. You have this, this man who plays the role of Abraham. And you sit down in this, in this tent and you have a meal there and it's a traditional meal as would have been shared had we been back in Abraham's day and he invited us into his tent for dinner. But after we ate I walked out from the tent out to the edge of a hill and, and the hill went steeply down and then I could look out and literally see the rolling hills of Judea. And as I stood there on that hill it, it was such a, I got chills up and down my spine thinking about this verse. When the Lord said, Arise, walk about the land through its length and its its breadth, I will give it to you. And I stood there looking at it, and I thought, I wonder if this was the kind of view that Abraham had. When God said, Look, look to the north and to the south, the east and the west. I'm going to give all of this to you, this land. It will be yours and your descendants forever. It's the land covenant, and that's the covenant that Moses begins to reiterate to the people, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 29. These are the words of the covenant Which the Lord commanded Moses to make With the sons of Israel in the land of Moab Besides the covenant Which he had made with them at Horeb Besides the covenant This is not the Mosaic covenant now When I say the Mosaic covenant You understand, it's not floor tiles Okay, It's the covenant of Moses The covenant at Horeb Which was and is The only conditional covenant God ever made with Israel He made six, seven, some would even say as many as eight different covenants with people and many of them with Israel. And all of them, with the exception of the covenant of Moses at Mount Horeb, all of them are unconditional. The covenant at Mount Horeb was the Ten Commandments. If you keep these commandments, and as we read in chapter 28, if you do and obey and follow all the ordinances that the Lord tells you to... Well, then, you'll be okay. If you don't, all these curses will fall on you. If, then. It's a conditional covenant. Every other one is unconditional, including the land covenant that he gave to Abraham. Abraham did nothing to receive it. Israel, then and now, did nothing to receive that promise. God just says, I will be faithful to it because I'm God. It's my covenant with you. It's my promise to you. And so this is not the Mosaic Covenant. This covenant is beside that one. Verse 2, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you, this is interesting, a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear that's Moses saying he's saying Israelites you saw what the Lord did when he led you out of Egypt you watched and experienced and lived out the miracles in the desert but you still don't get it you still don't understand you have eyes but you can't see ears but you can't hear you have hearts but you don't know what God is about not yet he hasn't opened up the opportunity in other words it hasn't registered yet what's truly going on here well, I don't know about you, but I think walking through the Red Sea would have a, a pretty big impact on me. I think walking out of my tent in the morning to find manna on the ground would be shocking. Or watching a man strike a rock and seeing fresh water flow out of it would, would amaze me. But for all of that, Moses is saying, Israel, I'm just telling you like it is. It hasn't registered yet. There are times when I'm when I'm teaching and, and I can see, most of the time, in people's eyes, there's there's registry, you know? They're, they're thinking it through. They're processing. Every now and then I'll catch someone's eyes who it has not registered. So they kind of go... <laughs> <laughs> and they're just not They're not quite there. And I wonder, and it's possible maybe, I don't know, after 30 chapters of Moses preaching, maybe he's seeing a little bit of that right now. Maybe he's looking out at Israel. Because remember, the book of Deuteronomy is one long sermon. Moses is just talking and talking and taking them through the whole law once again. There must have been some Israelites standing there with just that. (laughs) And Moses says, To this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, eyes to see, or ears to hear. You're missing it, folks. Now, you all are not. You're doing fine so far. But we're only four verses in. Give me a chance. He says in verse 5, I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. A miracle. A miracle. Your sandal has not worn out on your foot. And this was in the days before Birkenstocks. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that that you might know that I am the Lord your God. What he's saying, by the way, in verse 6, you have not eaten bread, nor drunk wine or strong drink. The implication there in the language is, you haven't planted vineyards and reaped from them and made your own wine. You haven't planted fields and gotten grain from... In other words, you haven't done any work, Israel. All you've done is wandered in the desert and you always had water to drink and you always had manna to eat and you were always taken care of. Your shoes were in good shape. Your clothes in good shape. God has miraculously protected you 40 years and you're not getting it. You're missing it. God is saying, I cared for your every need. You wanted for nothing in the desert. And Moses is drawing the people, and I think we could be drawn along the same path into the recognition of blessing. And we talked about this on Sunday. Recognizing the blessing of the Lord. that He has blessed us. And not missing it for our own bitterness or for the fact that, that we can be depressed or bummed out. God has still blessed us. If none of us ever received another blessing from the Lord from this day forward, we would still be blessed beyond anything we've ever deserved. Recognizing the blessing. Sometimes we just fail to see what God has been doing while we're whining for God to do more. Our shoes have not worn out. There's clothing on our back that's in good shape. We have had a meal today. We're under warm and in warm houses and had a warm barn tonight, praise the Lord. And all sorts of good things that we just miss because we get so used to a God who takes absolute care of us. Recognizing the blessing. But here's the key And I just want to go back over this we, we talked again about this on Sunday But the key here gang To recognizing and seeing blessing I believe Is when we look to the harvest We see the fruit When we are out in the field Among those who need to be harvested With every soul That comes to the Lord Jesus Every fruit that is, that is born of, of the Savior We see blessing And we can praise the Lord for it and so if you're missing blessing in your life, a key is to get out into the harvest and start bringing souls to Jesus and you will re-experience blessing because we see the fruit of blessing when we look to the harvest and, and when we appreciate our Father, we see the fount of blessing. Sunday we talked about the prodigal son and not the son so much as the other brother. Who was busy working out in the field. But completely missed the blessing of living in his father's house. Why? Because he didn't appreciate dad. He wasn't grateful to the father. He never appreciated what he had. He never realized that he lived with the very source of blessing. He was in the house of the blesser. And he missed it. And he missed it. Paul puts it this way for us. 2 Corinthians 9.10. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower... And bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything. Why, Paul? He says, for all liberality. And he's not talking politics. He's not saying you're going to be enriched so you can be a liberal. He's saying you will be enriched in everything for more that you can give. God's going to bless you more so you can give more. And the more He blesses you, the more you can give, liberally, freely, which is through us producing thanksgiving to God. And Paul says, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. The thanksgiving, the giving, uh, we talked about two weeks ago, thanks and giving, they go hand in hand. The giving of ourselves but also the thanking of the Father that we might appreciate and recognize what Moses right here is saying, Israel has missed. They don't recognize it. Not yet. We're going on in verse 7. It says, When you reached this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out to meet us for battle. But we defeated them, and we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of the Manassites. So keep the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. You stand today, Moses says, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God, And into his oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today, in order that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God, just as he spoke to you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, and with those who who are not with us here today. This covenant, Moses says, goes far beyond the boundaries of this people. It's not just for the two or three million Jewish people gathered all around Moses that day. This covenant goes far beyond that. It's for those who are here, but it's also for future generations who would be recipients of this very covenant. And he says in verse 16, For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold which they had with them. So that there will not be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go serve the gods of those nations. But there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and Wormwood Wormwood Some of you may have heard that word before Wormwood It literally in the Bible It means bitterness That there would be no root of bitterness in your life Don't follow after the ways of man Don't go after the idols of the other nations You keep yourself focused on the Lord your God So that there would be no root of bitterness Or poisonous fruit No wormwood it's interesting how the word wormwood is used in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3 says, The lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Now, I think if more people could see an adulterer or an adulteress, someone that, that might be an attraction for an affair, if they could see that person with wormwoods you know, written across their forehead, maybe it would detour us a little bit. But that is... What an affair does That's what adultery ends up being Wormwood Bitterness Amos chapter 5 verse 6 The prophet said Seek the Lord that you may live Or he will break forth like a fire Oh house of Joseph It will consume With none to quench it for Bethel For those who turn justice Into wormwood And cast righteousness Down to the earth Those who would take justice And turn it into a bitter nasty thing Well, Wormwood describes poison, a bitter experience. And there's one other area that is very interesting just to note. We just finished studying Revelation a couple or three months back now. And Revelation chapter 8 describes that time during the tribulation period when the seven trumpet judgments begin. I'm not going to go into all the series of judgments, but there are there are three of them. And in the middle one, there are trumpet judgments, and there are seven of them. The third trumpet judgment blasts, and something happens. I'll read it to you. But you need to understand that there are those who believe that the trumpet judgments actually describe a nuclear holocaust followed by nuclear winter. And if you read through, starting in Revelation chapter 8, it ends right around chapter 11... If you read through the seven trumpet judgments and consider the description of what's, of what's being talked about there, it sounds like a nuclear holocaust. And again, followed by nuclear winter. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 8 verse 10. says, The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Bitter. Wormwood. Now, if we were reading that tonight from our Russian Bibles, you would find out that the word in Russian for wormwood is Chernobyl. Which is fascinating. Knowing that Chernobyl was the power plant, the nuclear power plant that melted down and caused so much damage years ago. The Lord does not want embittered, poisoned, cursed life for His children. However, some of His children choose it anyway. When we see people damaged, when we see people wounded, when we see people bitter and hurt and angry and really worked over in their lives. When we see people choosing lives of sin, you've got to understand, we've got to understand this is not God's will for anybody. It is not God's desire. And you know, sometimes it's my desire for other people. I hate to say it, but it's true. Especially someone who's wronged me. I like to get them, see them get a little bit of their own medicine. I like to see a little payback. You know, we've talked about it here before. One of the things we Americans love in the movies is revenge. We like to see the bad guy get it. I'm right now about three-fourths of the way through the fourth season of 24. And it's stressing me out. And I want Marwan, who's the bad guy in this season, I want him to get it. This is not God's desire for anyone. God's desire for everyone is that they would be saved, not bitter. That they would be blessed, not wiped out. And yet some choose it anyway. Look at verse 19. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man. And every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Gang, verse 19 is subtle, but significant. The New American Standard translation says that this kind of person will boast, but that's not the original translation. Boast, It's, it's the implication is right, but what it literally says is, this person blesses himself in his heart. It's not he boasts, it's he blesses himself in his own heart. Do you remember what the word blessed is in the Hebrew? Anyone remember that from Sunday? It's Barak. The word means abundance, but it also means adoration. And what Moses is saying here is the person who drives away, or the person who turns away from the Lord, is the one who adores himself in his own heart. Self-adoration. Self-adoration self-aggrandizement self-lifting up and saying I'm fine Moses I'm good to go God I hear your warnings and your curses and your heavy judgments Ooh, <laughs> but I'm fine I'm Barak in my own heart I'm, I'm blessed I'm blessed by my own blessing and me myself and I will be just fine thank you very much and Moses says that's the person that's going to be wiped out boasting it's blessing this yourself in your own heart. Again, there's not going to be a single person in heaven who's going to sing the song, I did it my way. you going to be there that way. Verse 21 going on. The Lord will then single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. Now, verse 22, the generation to come your sons who rise up after you And the foreigner who comes from a distant land When they see the plagues of the land And the diseases which with, the, with which the Lord has afflicted it Will say and Watch this All its land is brimstone and salt A burning waste unsown and unproductive And no grass grows in it Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah Adma and Zeboim which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. And the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? This is is fascinating to me. Moses is saying here that the land itself will ultimately be cursed because of Israel's sin. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, those words, all the land is brimstone and salt... Do any of you Bible history buffs remember what happened when Hadrian drove the Jews out in 135 A.D.? Do you remember what he did? He salted the land so that it couldn't bear fruit. He had his officers go all throughout the land of Israel taking huge massive bags of salt going into all the the one time productive soil and spreading salt everywhere and it poisoned and ruined the soil. And so Israel ended up exactly as Moses said it would be. A land of brimstone and salt, of burning waste, unsown, unproductive, and no grass grows on it. As a matter of fact, in the late 1800s, when the Jewish people began to go back into Israel and buy up plots of land, it was mosquito infested, it was malaria infested, it was bogs, it was in horrible shape, and they were able to buy the land because no Arab wanted it. The land of Israel was trashed. It was wasted. If you want to find out more about it, it's interesting to read the writings of Mark Twain, who went on a journey to Israel, and he wrote a book called Innocence Abroad, back in the 1860s, 150 years ago. Mark Twain was there, and he describes what he sees. And he's pretty put off by the whole thing. In fact, in his description, he talks about how, you know, people talk about the Holy Land, and how beautiful it is, and he said, I see nothing beautiful here. He said, we traveled for days and didn't see anything but a single Bedouin. No plants. No life. Just a dead wasteland. I encourage you to pick up that book. It's an interesting read, Innocence Abroad by Mark Twain. But one of the miracles of the modern land of Israel is the way the land is flourishing and flowering. It's absolutely stunning. There are tropical plants growing in Israel. And fruit trees. And it's beautiful. The region of the Galilee, once again, is a vast, green, beautiful region. And it wasn't that way when Twain was there just 150 years ago. So these curses would be on the land. Watch this, verse 24. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to the land? And why this great outburst of anger? And then men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods who they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is today. And then Moses says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever That we may observe all the words of this law He says there are secret things These are things hard to understand But Moses is saying God is going to connect you to this land And if you choose a curse This land in and of itself Will be cursed Which is an answer to this question What happens when a nation That is blessed by the Lord Believes in the Lord Turns their back on the Lord We have a graphic example in the people and the land of Israel. A land given to a people, a land blessed by the Lord, a people blessed by the Lord, who rejected the Lord. And the land was laid waste. And my friends, this should rattle us to our American roots. It should shake us up. We think we're impervious because we're Americans. A country that was founded on Christian principle, Christian ideals, Judeo-Christian ethic. But that's gone from our lands now. And what does the Bible have to say about this? Keep your finger in Deuteronomy 29 and, and flip over quickly to Isaiah chapter 5. I just want to show you something. Isaiah chapter 5. Where Isaiah gives a beautiful description of the land of Israel and what happened to it and why it was laid waste. Isaiah chapter 5 I'll begin reading in verse 1 Let me sing now for my well-beloved The song of my beloved Concerning his vineyard My well-beloved had a vineyard On a fertile hill He's talking about Israel The land He dug it all around He removed its stones Planted it with the choicest vine And he built a tower in the middle of it And he hewed out a wine vat in it Then he expected it to produce good grapes But it produced only worthless ones O oh now, and now, O oh inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, tell, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. This is God giving a parable here, a picture. The vineyard is the land of Israel. And God's saying, what am I going to do with this land that produced no good good grapes? There was not a fruit of righteousness produced. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Verse 5. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. And I will also charge the clouds to rain, uh, to rain no rain on it. And then he says, The vineyard of the house, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Now it's interesting because Isaiah here will now go on to describe six woes of a failing nation. Six things that you can find in this chapter That are a picture of a nation That is going under And see if any of these Sound familiar to you Verse 8 Woe to those who add house to house And join field to field Until there is no more room So that you have to live alone In the midst of the land In my ears the Lord of hosts has sworn Surely many houses shall become desolate Even great and fine ones Without occupants. For ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine. And a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain. What he's talking about, gang, is materialism. Materialism is a sign of a nation that is going under. Materialism. Second one. Look down in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. Who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. And their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute, and by wine. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. Number two, hedonism. Hedonism. A party mentality. Materialism, hedonism. How about verse 18? Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. What do you mean with cart ropes? Picture a gay pride parade. Picture of a parade. It's a people who would parade their sin before the Lord. In other words, number three, exhibitionism. Have you ever seen in the news those uh, shots, of those pictures of gay pride parades? It's, it's it's some of them. It's just absolutely stunning how brash and brazen they are before the Lord. Paul writes this. He says in Ephesians five eleven, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. And he says that it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. So exhibitionism would would be number three, a nation that. That flaunts its sin before the Lord Number four Relativism Relativism Look at verse 20 Woe to those who call evil good And good evil Who substitute darkness for light And light for darkness Who substitute bitter for sweet And sweet for bitter Hey, truth is whatever you make it It's relative That's good for you That's your truth I have my truth Not so There is absolute truth And that absolute truth is Jesus Christ but we live in a world, in a nation gang, which is number four, relative. Truth is relative. And a relative people will taste the bitterness of Wormwood. Number five. Number five is arrogant elitism. Verse 21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. People who would say something like, <laughs> You really are gotta... Go to school and stay in college, get an education because it's either that or a rat. (laughs) Arrogant elitism. (laughs) <laughs> Whatever you think about Carrie's comments I'll just let you work that out <laughs> But it is interesting to live, gang and, and we can laugh a little bit about that But we live in a country that we consider ourselves elite And you and I are guilty of it too mm-hmm. We do it's, we, it's, and Maybe Linda, maybe you're not But I, I am And we have that tendency to look down That elitism Hey, we're the superpower Be careful, Babylon was a superpower Greece was a superpower. Rome was a superpower. More recently, Russia, the USSR, was the other superpower. Elitism. And number six in this list, a compromised judicial system. Verse 23, he says, Woe to those who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. A compromised justice system. These are all pictures of a nation that's failing, and they all can be applied in unsettling ways to the United States of America verse 24 he says therefore as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame so their root will become like rot and their blossom will blow away as dust for they have rejected the law of the lord of hosts and despised the word of the holy one of israel and gang every indicator of america's deterioration in the past 30 years can be traced to the year that we outlawed prayer in the public school and we outlawed the reading of the bible in our public schools and when America did that, these other things began to creep in and pop up. I'm not saying that America has, was sinless before that. Hey Amen. Where there's a human being, there's sin. But we have a country right now that has gone so far off the track. A country, by the way, that I love. And when I say these things and I talk about America, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, downgrade the country that, 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 where we have been provided so much. But Israel was given everything. They were given the land. But the people turned their backs on God and God decimated the land. The land ended up wiped out. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 29. That's what is being described here. And Moses is talking about this land covenant. God promised, I'm giving you the land, Abraham. But part of the deal will be that Israel is going to turn their backs on God and when they do, the land itself will become cursed Deuteronomy 30 verse 1 so it shall be when all of these things have come upon you the blessing and the curse which I have set before you and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you when the Lord has banished you and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today you and your sons then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. And have compassion on you. And will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Moses is saying clearly, plainly, this is going to happen. You are going to fall under the curse, Israel. You are going to choose to run away from God. And when you choose that and when it happens, you are also going to ultimately come back. And God's going to bless you. He says, verse 4, If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. Babylon was not at the end of the earth. Babylon was right there in the Middle East, not far from Israel. And so when they were cast out into Babylon and driven out, it wasn't far that they went. Even when Rome drove them out, it was somewhat near, although they began to spread out after that and be dispersed throughout the world. The Lord your God will bring you back, he says. I like that phrase. From there, and it doesn't matter how far you've been driven, from there, verse 4, he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply, you listen to this, more than your fathers. That's important to note right there because historically, again, that never happened. When the people came back from Babylon that first time into the land, they rebuilt the temple. And it said in the scriptures, it said that when the, the young men saw the building of the temple, they were celebrating and rejoicing because they had a temple again. When the old men saw it, they wept profusely because they remembered the glory of the previous temple. And it was nothing like it. Israel never achieved the glory at the height of, of David and Solomon when the kingdom was was at its zenith. Israel has never returned to that. And yet Moses says right here, he's going to bring you back and prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. It'll be amazing. Moreover, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you and persecute you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all His commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the produce of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground, for the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as He rejoiced over your fathers if you obey the Lord your God and keep His commandments and His statutes which are written in this book of the law if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul now listen this is the heart of the land covenant when you've turned your back on me and you've been driven out turn back to me and I will gather you in doesn't matter how far from me you've gone this is a great word for us today Especially for Christians who have wandered off It doesn't matter how far you've gone All you have to do is turn around I had a conversation with a lady About three weeks ago on a Sunday morning And it was the first time that she had been in church In about 30 years And she was angry with God And she was bitter toward God There were several circumstances in her life Which I won't share that had led her to that place Where she wanted nothing to do with God But she came at the request of a family member And as we sat and talked, the one thing that concerned her more than anything else was she said, I've gone so far away from the Lord that I'm just not sure if I can make it back. And I told her what Moses is telling us here. All you have to do is turn around and you're back. It doesn't matter how far you've drifted. It doesn't matter how far to the ends of the earth. All you have to do is turn around and you're back. That's how good grace is. That's how awesome the Lord is in His love for us. Now this process with Israel is yet to happen. And that's what I meant earlier when I said we're seeing this return to the land, but it's not the prophesied second return, the second ingathering of the Jewish people. That's not what's prophesied. Wait a minute though, what's happening today? Today we're seeing a great, or there has been at least, a great return to Israel. But there's also a great Exodus going on, both to Europe and to America, Jews getting out of Israel in record numbers right now. Wouldn't you? If you lived in northern Israel and your house was bombed by Hezbollah, would you stay? They're tired of the battles and the war. They're they're exhausted from all that, that is going on. And the Jewish popul- the Jewish population in Israel today is currently shrinking, not growing. Now that's kind of hard for some people to see or to understand Because it seems like a lot of Jews are still coming in Especially the Russian Jews but, but here's an interesting note There's no way to tell for sure If all the Jews coming out of Russia and into Israel are Jewish It's just their word And there's a growing suspicion That there are a lot of Russian Jews who are not Jewish at all They're just Russians trying to get out of Russia and get to a better place <laughs> So they're heading down to Israel Because Israel is a better land than Russia, even for all the terrorism. And the return that we have seen in this generation is a secular return. Israel, for itself, is a mostly secular nation. As a matter of fact, Tel Aviv is to Israel what Las Vegas is to America. It is a sin-soaked city. They're having just this year, it's supposed to, there's a lot of protests against it, and if you go to... Um, I think it's the AmericanFamilyValuesCoalition.com. Is that the right one? Some of you get get their emails, but you can't petition against this. But coming up, um, I believe this month, this month there there's a uh, gay pride parade that's supposed to happen in Jerusalem. Talk about an affront to God. But Israel is a secular nation mostly And Jerusalem itself is very spiritual I mean the, the Hasidic Jews are there The ultra, ultra Orthodox are there in Jerusalem But so much of the rest, rest of the nation is getting sick of it In fact there is, a, there is a divide Between the secular and the spiritual Jews The secular Jews sick and tired of the spiritual Jews Wanting the Temple Mount Wanting to rebuild the Temple Forget the Temple Give it to the Palestinians Who cares Just today by the way um, the leadership in Israel indicated that they might be willing to go to the table and talk about Saudi Arabia's suggestion for a new roadmap to peace. Saudi Arabia's suggestion is that they return to 1967, before the War of 67, which means the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount, would all go to the Palestinians. We'll see what's going to happen there. But the problem is that at this point, at this point, Israel's heart has yet to be circumcised. That has not happened. There has been a massive return and a prophetic return to the land. But the heart is not circumcised. What do you mean circumcised? Tender. The phrase circumcised there is graphic, but it's very specific. A heart that is circumcised is a heart that has become tender before the Lord. And across Israel today, the mood is not tender. It's tough. You could even call it bitter and war-torn. People are, are so fed up with things, they just want peace.